we want to maintain growers productivity but we want growers to be using the fertiliser in a sustainable way. Welcome to a new season of Think Sustainability. I'm your host, Marlene Even. In this episode, we are talking about phosphorus fertiliser. The supply, security and use of phosphorus is a major sustainability issue, and yet it still seems to be a silent one. Globally, we have areas that cannot access phosphorus fertiliser and other areas that use too much of it, which can cause all sorts of environmental havoc. So how do we use a finite essential resource sustainably? We'll look at the current phosphorus challenges, a few of the solutions, and how we move forward. You're listening to Think Sustainability. Um, Professor Stuart White, I'm the Director of the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. We're an institute that works on solutions to sustainability problems across a wide range of areas. We're going to unpack some of the issues around phosphorus fertiliser. But first, let's take a step back. What is phosphorus? Yeah, so phosphorus is, is one of the elements in the periodic table, like carbon or nitrogen or sulphur. It's quite unique in terms of it, it is an absolute requirement for life on the planet. So for growing plants and therefore for growing animals, uh, we all need phosphorus. It's actually part, literally part of our DNA. And unlike nitrogen, which is lots of it in the atmosphere and in principle and indeed in practice, we can fix it by using legumes. Uh, so plants that actually take nitrogen from the air and put it into the soil and phosphorus is different because it doesn't exist uh, in a gaseous phase like that or a liquid phase. It's a, it's, a, it's a fossil. It's a fossil mineral. So its resource is constrained. It's scattered across the planet in a not very concentrated form. So it costs a lot to concentrate it and use it as a fertilizer. Plants need phosphorus. It is one of the key nutrients for plants to grow. So that means a surging demand in food equals a surging demand in phosphorus. As Professor Stuart White mentions, phosphorus is a fossil mineral, meaning it's a finite, non-renewable resource. So how do we extract phosphorus to use it as a fertiliser? Lately, uh, in the last uh, several decades, rock phosphate has become the primary source. In the past, we used to use guano, which is sort of uh, bird droppings uh, and manures, of course, which are still used, but the vast proportion of the world's phosphorus is used. Uh, it comes from rock phosphate, uh, and that is very concentrated in the world. 80% of the world's phosphate rock supply is produced by just five countries, China, Morocco and Western Sahara, the United States of America and Russia. Few countries have their own phosphate rock reserves. In fact, 70% of the world's known reserves are found in Morocco and Western Sahara alone, according to the R Phosphorus Future Report, a global report by over 40 experts. So with the world supply of phosphorus in the hands of just a few countries, geopolitical issues can easily impact supply issues and cost. It's a major impact. I mean, we've often been aware of the fact that oil, for example, is geopolitically concentrated, but phosphorus is even more so. And when you think about uh, Morocco, and of course Morocco 
uh, has occupied Western Sahara against UN resolutions. So there's a whole human rights issue associated with that. Uh, China has significant resources of phosphorus, but have actually put export tariffs on those for many years. And in the current context, in the most recent times, they've actually upped uh, their restrictions on the export of phosphorus. At the end of 2021, China restricted their exportation of phosphate in a bid to manage their national food security. At the same time, Russia set their own quotas on fertiliser exports. The Russia-Ukraine war is having a major impact on food security globally. Let's put this into perspective. Last year, six countries from Europe and Central Asia imported more than half of their fertiliser from Russia, while the European Union sourced nearly 30%. So with two of the biggest fertiliser heavyweights restricting their exports, we've seen prices increase globally. The price has gone up recently on phosphorus. What's the factors that led to that spike in the price? Yeah, well, there are three main different source types of fertilisers in terms of elements. There's uh, nitrogen and potassium and phosphorus. And a lot of our work is focused on phosphorus because of the global security issue associated with it. All three of them are rising in price at a rapid rate. And with nitrogen, it's uh, pretty clear uh, natural gas uh, energy and fossil fuel inputs have a major role to play in the price of nitrogen fertiliser. So that's obvious why that's going up. In terms of uh, potassium, uh, Belarus is a major supplier, so they've been subject to sanctions even before the recent Ukraine war. And phosphorus is impacted by all of those because it's got a relatively high energy input. It also uses sulphur. It also uses uh, nitrogen because you have them in combination. So the price will increase. And also, as I said, China is reducing uh, its uh, any exports they had. So they're really keeping their phosphorus to themselves quite reasonably. Uh, and there's just pressure overall. So we're starting to see that impact on phosphorus, which is almost reaching the levels it was in 2008 with the major price spike. Uh, And that is of great concern because the pressure that then puts on food prices is, is of course, what we saw in 2008 and what we will be, well, are starting to see already. In 2008, phosphate rock prices spiked by 800%. According to the R Phosphorus Future report, phosphate rock prices and fertiliser prices have increased by 400% since 2020. In June this year, growers and stakeholders gathered for the Fertiliser Australia conference. One of the big topics on their agenda, domestic manufacturing. It was mainly looking at alternate sources of phosphate um, and, and Australian sources of phosphate. That's a really big uh, important aspect of uh, for, for Australian farmers to be able to access fertiliser that's been manufactured or mined in Australia. This is Stephen Annals, the Chief Executive of Fertiliser Australia, the industry association representing manufacturers, importers and distributors of fertiliser in Australia. Sort of the, the, the period we've just been through with COVID and with, uh, um, with the shipping being so disrupted, Uh, it really highlighted the need for um, domestic production. We are one of the world's top importers of phosphorus, even though we actually do have uh, some reasonable resources in the Northern Territory in Queensland. 
In Australia, one of the major phosphate deposits is the Georgina Basin, which stretches across northwest Queensland and the Northern Territory. There are a few extra hurdles to becoming self-sufficient and mining phosphate in Australia, according to Stephen. But unfortunately, these things cost a lot of money, uh, particularly in Australia. Uh, our cost of, um, of setting up plants to be able to manufacture this stuff or, or process it is, is expensive. Um, our environmental requirements are more costly than in other countries. Our health and safety requirements are more costly than in other countries. And you're saying that, I think they're, they're good, they should be maintained, but they, they are more expensive. Uh, and also our labour is more expensive. So, um, uh, and then the freight, getting, getting, um, getting the product to the end user is expensive in Australia as well. So while we would love to have this, um, it, it, there, is, there is a big journey we've got to go on uh, before we can uh, be um, domestically self-sustained. Professor Stuart White adds that Australia's phosphate rock deposits are less concentrated than other countries such as Morocco or China. Our soils are very old geologically, so they're, they're weathered. They don't have much phosphate in our agricultural soils. So the amount of phosphorus we can get from mining is not sufficient, way less than what we actually import. So we need phosphorus to feed our ever-growing population. But mining can have negative environmental impacts, such as water contamination or the consequences of strip mining. Strip mining removes soil, rock and vegetation on the surface to get to the minerals underneath. Australia played a key role in the strip mining of phosphate in Nauru and the Banaba Islands in Kiribati in the Pacific Islands, which left areas uninhabitable with extreme environmental damages and dispossession. Phosphorus is an essential, non-renewable resource, which doesn't really have a substitute. But we can recycle and recover phosphorus, such as the phosphorus in animal, human and food waste, and legacy phosphorus already within our soils, which we'll be exploring shortly. While there may not be a direct synthetic substitute for phosphorus, one way to farm in a more sustainable way is to use fertiliser carefully and efficiently. We need to be ensuring that we're only using as much phosphorus as we need. There, there are studies that show that you know if you if you keep on applying phosphorus, you don't get an uh, it isn't it isn't a linear um, uh, upwards movement in, in in yield. There is a limitation on yield, so we need to make sure that we're only using just as much phosphorus as we need. Let's talk about recycling. Not only do we need to use fertilizer more efficiently, Professor Stuart White says there's a need to recover phosphorus. Our agricultural products tend to be quite phosphorus and fertiliser intensive, which means that we've got, if, can, can you imagine, rivers of phosphorus coming in on ships from uh, other countries, Middle East and so on, and then being sent back out on ships full of wheat and cattle and sheep and so on. So that uh, process is incredibly wasteful because we're not recovering the phosphorus and the rest of it of course is being eaten in Australia uh, and is being discharged through sewage treatment plants which is rarely recovering the phosphorus. I mean often even if the phosphorus is uh, captured it's captured in a form that can't be reused such as with uh, through alum coagulation and so on. 
As Stuart mentions, one source of phosphorus is you. Well, all of us. We excrete half a kilogram of phosphorus per year. So why are we flushing away a valuable resource? Many researchers and industry workers are finding ways to close the loop to shift from a linear process towards a circular one. One invention is a urine diversion toilet, which recycles urine into liquid fertiliser. Researchers at Griffith University will be rolling out a trial of bathrooms in Brisbane and Sydney. The trial, led by the University of Technology Sydney, will explore why we as a society have moved away from historically a circular process. And they will investigate how they can extract the nutrients without including any chemicals or hormones that we digest, such as antibiotics. So we need to look uh, at the whole chain from the mine right through, not just to the farm, but then to the fork. Because if you look at that, and we've mapped this in our research, uh, we look at the losses all along that chain. It's something like 80% losses. So in other words, one-fifth of the phosphorus that starts in the mine is what ends up on the fork. And that includes, obviously, the, the biggest proportion, that is the inefficient use on farm, uh, but also right through to food waste itself, which is, of course, as we know, is a whole separate uh, but significant issue. And then, of course, a lot of that phosphorus is just flushed out to sea. I mean, literally. <laughs> so that's, what, that's a big waste as well, because we're not capturing what goes through our bodies in terms of our food. Uh, is all comes out, and therefore we, uh, if we just flush that out to sea or into our waterways through sewage treatment plants, uh, then we are wasting that precious resource that that you know the planet only has a finite amount of. Researchers by the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences estimates that humans produce enough urine to replace nearly one quarter of current nitrogen and phosphorus fertilisers worldwide. So we need to definitely recover and reuse. And cities then become hotspots. They become a resource for mining <laughs> phosphorus, and we need to start doing that. Uh, but perhaps the most important thing we need to do first, and the lowest cost, is to improve the efficiency. Because if we do that, then there'll be less that we have to deal with in terms of recovery and recycling. Often it's easier then to recover and recycle. So... Uh, that's the first thing we always need to do is to improve the efficiency of the way we use phosphorus in the first place. And how do we go about doing that, improving that efficiency? Yeah, well, that's where you come back to the uh, the whole chain. So obviously in the mining, and some of that's done here, but a lot of it's done overseas, and we might have less control over that. Uh, but certainly what we do have control over is uh, when that fertiliser lands on our shores, we treat it for the valuable resource that it is, and we provide the support, literally financial support, information support, field days, continuing education, whatever it might take to support farmers to optimise the use of phosphorus. We'll always need some. It's not a question of not using it. It's a question of how do we support farmers to absolutely optimise the use, and part of that can be changes in processes, practices and behaviour. A project called FertCare by Fertiliser Australia is looking to do just that. The program is directed to agronomists, experts that provide advice to farmers about plant nutrition and the use of fertiliser. 
Stephen Annals from Fertiliser Australia explains. So we train up agronomists to, uh, to ensure that they are providing sound advice uh, and that sound advice revolves around uh, the right sorts of fertiliser, uh, applied at the right time, in the right rates, in the right place. Um, that way, we, if, if the fertiliser is used in that way, uh, growers are going to get the an, an optimum productivity. Uh, they'll be able to um, put on just as much fertiliser as they need and to, uh, to ensure that they are getting bang for their buck out of, out of, out of the, um, the fertilisers they put in. Training like this is crucial to prevent fertiliser runoff from farms into waterways. In a process called eutrophication, waterways can be over-enriched by nutrients like phosphorus and nitrogen. The nutrients can get into our waterways from sources such as fertiliser, animal waste and sewage. That excess nutrients causes a large amount of algae to bloom and when it decomposes, it reduces the oxygen which creates dead zones for aquatic life. Well, look, the, the issue with, um, with runoff is, is a very big one. In the Geograph Bay um, region, uh, Pearl River region and the Swan River catchment region of, uh, of Western Australia, just south of Perth, a number of years ago there was um, a collapse of one of the ecosystems there and the government had to look and see you know, what they do. They, they did actually look at banning um, soluble phosphate fertilisers, um, but we worked with them and work with the growers, uh, and we've had a collaborative approach. The Peel-Harvey Estuary Ecosystem in WA, Western Australia, collapsed in the 1980s due to nutrient pollution. Using soil testing, a 2020 state government report found the levels of phosphorus in the majority of paddocks in the Peel-Harvey catchment has built up in soils to exceed plant requirements and are leaching into the estuary over time. They found two of the most effective actions to reduce phosphorus is the optimal use of fertiliser on all beef and dairy farms and using soil amendments to bind phosphorus. Professor Stuart White says water runoff is an issue across multiple Australian ecosystems. We've had problems with uh, cyanobacteria, or blue-green, so-called blue-green algae, in the Hawkesbury-Nepean, uh, in the Murray-Darling. The Hawkesbury-Nepean River is northwest of Sydney, while the Murray-Darling Basin is in southeastern Australia. And the Peel-Harvey estuary in WA and so on. So all across Australia we've had, and particularly at times of... Uh, low flows, hot weather, high phosphorus discharge, we've got a serious problem. And it costs an enormous amount to remove that phosphorus through chemical means like alum uh, coagulation. So if we were to put systems in place where we could capture it in a way that gets it reused, we would be, that's a win-win and win (laughs) because we're reducing costs and capturing it for reuse as well. So what are some other sustainable solutions? We've discussed the top priority to improve the efficiency of fertiliser use, to prevent the waste of a precious resource and environmental concerns like water runoff. And we've looked at methods of recycling and recovering phosphorus 
such as through waste streams. Another option is to harness the use of locked up phosphorus already within our soils. Chris Hall is a regenerative farmer living in Wombat. Uh, Wombat's in New South Wales, probably an hour and a half northwest of Canberra um, in the hilltops uh, region next to Young, which is famous for the cherries, cherry capital of Australia. Chris is the 2019 New South Wales Farmer of the Year. I've got a cherry orchard called Hall Family Orchards that is um, regenerative orchard and also have a few fat lambs as well. And uh, I've done a bachelor in horticulture science at Hawkesbury. After studying horticulture science, Chris returned to the family farm and set to work to correct their soils. Yeah, so we had to fix a few problems. And then at the same time, I was trying to encourage the microbes, but we're still using chemicals, still using fungicides. So it was, I think I was trying to do one thing and, and then trying to keep the microbes, promote microbes, and next minute I'm killing them. So there was that battle. Microbes are microscopic organisms essential for soil health. Bacteria are the most common microbes within soil. There are different types of bacteria to suppress diseases, decompose your compost and hold water. Professor Stuart White explains that improving the microbes assists the plants to access phosphorus. The microbes in the soil are the friend of making sure that phosphorus is taken up by the plant, doesn't sit there in order to run off later, so it maximises the efficiency in the root zone, which is absolutely crucial. Phosphorus can, we have large stores and stocks of phosphorus in the soil. In fact, in some areas, it's probably over-applied. Uh, and certainly in European soils, they've been applying phosphate for some years, and so there's probably an opportunity for them to actually use up some of those stocks of phosphorus and in the Australian context if if we uh, use them up then it might provide less risk of runoff if we optimally apply the phosphate. Unfortunately phosphorus is probably the most locked up um, nutrient that we apply so uh, most of the time that uh, we have to apply a lot of phosphorus to only be able to use about 10 percent. Plant can usually uh, uptake about 10% and the other 90% gets locked up in the soil. So it's very inefficient, but it's a crucial part. So, When phosphorus is applied to soils as a fertiliser, it reacts to minerals within the soil and binds to them. That's what causes them to be locked up. Plants then can't access all of the phosphorus applied. Phosphorus get tied, often gets tied up with... Uh, calcium in the soil, uh, especially in high pH soils. In low pH soils, it often gets locked up with aluminium, iron and manganese. It's due to this reaction that historically fertiliser has been over-applied. Researchers are looking at ways to use the locked up phosphorus already in our soils called legacy phosphorus. In a regenerative system, we encourage the microbes to unlock those bonds um, that phosphorus get tied, often gets tied up with. To increase the microbes, Chris says he keeps the soils covered, reduces ploughing, grows green plants all year round and ensures a diversity of plant families on his farm. In 2013, he started reducing the use of chemicals on his farm and building up the organic matter in his soil. And then by 2018, we went chemical free. 
and then really haven't looked back since. As a regenerative farmer, it's exciting times because with our cherry farm, we've um, managed to go chemical free and we're reduced our fertiliser inputs significantly um, just by encouraging the microbes in the soil and really going back to how Mother Nature survives and how it produces wonderful forests without any fertiliser being added. And it's really coming down to the, the fact that our soils aren't depleted of phosphorus. They're not missing phosphorus. It's actually um, we've got a shortage of microbes in the soil that is able to break down those bonds and then separate whether it's phosphorus and calcium. Um, there's enzymes there and there's bacteria and fungi that are able to make that available to the plants. And all those years of putting superphosphate on or MAP on and having 90% of it locked up in the soil, now we can access all that product that we put on in the past. We're now able to access that. So if regenerative farming is one way to decrease our reliance on chemical fertilisers, I asked Chris why are we not seeing more farmers practising this method of farming? Suppose uh, a fertiliser is pretty quick. You go to town, you buy that fertiliser, whether nitrogen or phosphorus, you come home, um, you auger it into a, a drill or into a spreader and it's done. Um, they don't have to think about it again. Whereas in a in an ecosystem, you have to build that ecosystem up, build up our microbes. So it might take a few years to convert over. Uh, it might take 12 months. If you do it really well, you can convert your system to a regenerative system. But um, sometimes, yeah, it can take, can take a few years to convert. But with a growing population, food insecurity and financial pressures on farmers, can farmers risk a couple of years to convert their farming system? And can we afford not to? So how do we move forward? A team of international researchers have called on policymakers worldwide to manage phosphorus in a more sustainable way. They set this out in the Helsinki Declaration. To have 500 scientists to agree on the declaration, which is quite powerful, it's not wishy-washy at all, was quite significant. And it's uh, not coincidental that it's, of course, named Helsinki Declaration because the Baltic Sea uh, is one of the original hotspots for phosphorus runoff uh, from agriculture and other in industrial sources. Some of the solutions put forward include using the resource more efficiently throughout the agri-food chain, increasing reuse and recycling, ensuring phosphorus is accessible to all farmers, mitigating impacts that the resource has in the environment, and finally, altering our diets. Professor Stuart White says changing diets is already part of the discussion in Europe. You know, people are not afraid to have the discussion about changes in diets, which I think in Australia is a bit more difficult. But he believes it's a way to get through to 2050 because it's not just a question of um, how efficient we use it, but we also need to actually change the uh, diets in order to make sure that we're not using the most phosphorus-intensive and, indeed, greenhouse and water-intensive uh, forms of food. In other words, eating further down the food chain, more plant-based, less meat, uh, in summary. And then, of course, improving efficiency by working with farmers 
with consumers and raising the awareness of consumers. For example, a labelling scheme on greenhouse content and phosphorus content of food uh, is something that we might see in the future and people can then make informed choices about their impact of their diet. The Helsinki Declaration calls for the 50-50-50 goal, a 50% reduction in global phosphorus pollution and a 50% increase in recycling of phosphorus by 2050. Professor Stuart White says we need to have a multi-stakeholder dialogue as the responsibility spreads across multiple jurisdictions and ministries. In Australia, we will be looking towards the new government once they uh, get settled uh, in order to see whether we could bring, now with the example of uh, Europe and North America, whether we could bring that example and say, okay, we are affected here in Australia. This is a security issue as much as anything else, it's certainly an environmental and a health and a balance of payments issue. So let's, let's get talking about this. Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Marlene Even. Thanks for your company.